Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in a capital on lockdown for the second week in a row. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Brian McMorrin, Managing Director of Right at Home Central London, a company who provides a premium quality service to adults and older people who require some assistance to live at home and enjoy their independence. Brian, hello. Hi. Um, of course, uh, it would be wonderful if we could get straight into our conversation on leadership, but unfortunately, I believe we need to spend some time discussing COVID-19. Now, uh, how has that affected uh, your business? Um, well, first of all, with the, when it all started a couple of weeks ago that we saw that London was having an issue, we upped our recruitment. Um, so far today, we've got about 55 people on the team. We only have four people that are self-isolating and only one of them is showing symptoms. But we've, we're recruiting as many people as possible so that we have backup staff. We don't want our clients to be at the stage that they can't still continue to receive the care that they need. Right. We also feel morally we need to be doing everything we can to help the NHS and social services at this time. You know, this isn't a time about trying to make big revenues. It's about everyone pulling together and helping as much as we can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the big issue we have seen has been around the PPE, which obviously has been widely reported in the press. Um, we've now we've got a good stock in this week, but there's still a big shortage across the industry of hand gel, um, hand sanitizer, which is really something we're desperately needing. Um, but that's not just us; it's the entire healthcare industry as a whole is facing that shortage at the moment. How has your uh, operations, your daily operations, changed from this? Um, we're doing alternate days in the office. So today is the first day in three weeks I've actually been in the office with somebody else. We've been trying to make it just one person each day in the office. Um, but today we've been doing training for a new start, which is why there's two of us in the office. But that way we're still able to keep the two meter distance from each other. Mm-hmm. The big concern has been we don't want any of the senior team to be sick at the same time, should we? unfortunately come down with this. So there's a lot of contingency planning has gone into place to make sure we will always be able to function as a business, even if two of us were to get sick. Hmm. Now, uh, why don't we transition on to a happier subject, which is leadership. Um, I always like to start this conversation off with the same question. Uh, regular listeners will know this, uh, but it's a very simple question with um, uh, sometimes very complex answers. What does the word leader mean to you? I would say um, the word leader. So, sorry, I've, sorry, let me start again. Yeah, so leader to me, it's someone that's got to build the trust within the team, build the confidence, Mm. make sure they have the right talent within the team to get things done to a high level. They should always be approachable as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And really, the key thing really is making those decisions, but making sure that you're leading a team. You're not just t- you're not just saying do things. Everyone on the team is providing their input as well, so they feel mm. jointly engaged in what you're trying to achieve. So it's about creating a trusting uh, environment within a framework of support. Yes, that's exactly it. Yes. How do you offer support to your staff? Uh, I'm sure that throughout their uh, working day, uh, a, a lot of times they are confronted with uh, situations that they may find uh, depressing or distressing. Uh, what sort of uh, support do you have for your staff? I think if I look back to you know when I started the business, you know it was just me and one other person in the office. 
So as each time someone else has come into the office, I then spent a lot of time with that person one-on-one before leaving them on their own. Um, and then checking in with them at regular intervals throughout the day when they are working on their own, making sure they know they can come to me and ask me if mm. they have any concerns or any questions, and just being as approachable as possible. You know, it's very much been the case for the office staff. In terms of the field staff, it's about making sure that I'm visible at the training when they come into the office. Right. So that they know that I am approachable as well for anything that they need. And recently, you know, as the business is more established, it's a lot easier. I can talk through real life examples of where people have needed help before. So I can give them the tools straight away that they might need. Also, when we started, it was, you know, dealing with each of these on a case by case basis because it was a brand new business. We weren't sure what our client base was going to look like and the typical problems that we might see every day. And what sort of problems uh, are most common uh, that you run into? Um, well, it varies. You know, number one, obviously, we're a care business. We deal with a lot of clients with dementia. So you are dealing with confusion. There can be periods of really challenging behavior. Um, there's not been any period, any episode of violence, but it can be very aggress- aggressive behavior from a language point of view, which can scare the staff. Um, there's safeguarding issues that we might come across, you know, particularly when we take on new clients and find out what their life is really like, not what they've told us it's been like when we've done the initial assessment. Um, but then there's things in the office, you know, the, the other challenges we'll face in the office is, you know, someone doesn't turn up for an interview or somebody's not happy at a decision that's been made or somebody suddenly changed their availability and they're not available to do shifts anymore. So it's really about dealing with those on a case-by-case basis, but then learning from that as much as we can to say, right, what could we do in advance to try and preempt any of this in the future? Now, of course, uh, it is a fact that uh, sometimes the care sector gets a bad name from some very rare individual uh, circumstances. Do you find that this is something that you have to combat relatively uh, regularly? Um, Well, I mean, I was shocked today to see some news stories about care workers being abused and being accused of spreading this virus when they're the ones that are on the front line trying to help people. Um, for us, the big challenge has been that particularly, you know, when I started, we were finding the job centres were just sending along people who couldn't do any other job. It was still very much seen as, oh, if you can't do anything else, you don't need any qualifications to be a caregiver. But it's really not the case. It is a very important job. You know, we've seen quite a few people join our team who decided not to go to university and do nursing. They wanted to be hands-on from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And they can have a very good long-term career. So we're trying to really up the profile of what it means to be a caregiver. You know, you, there's lots of career routes, you know, starting at the bottom. As a caregiver, you know, you can become supervisor in the field, trainer in the field, you could go to work in the office, you could go to management. You know, there's so many different avenues that you can take to have a really well-paid and successful career. Do you believe that there's enough um, encouragement from education to get people into the care sector? No, I definitely don't. Again, I think there's so much education needs to be done that they're only suggesting it to the people that they can't think what else they could do. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it sounds really bad to say that, but it's just, you know, I've seen it time to get, time again. You know, we keep going back to advertising at the job centers thinking, you know, we want to help people that are struggling. But they're not, they're not turning up for interviews or they've put their own mobile phone number on their CVs deliberately so they can just tick the box to say they've applied for something rather than it actually being people who genuinely have an interest in doing this. For us, every applicant that applies to us gets a psychometric test and that really pulls out 
do they have an aptitude to care? Do they right. genuinely want to care? And what is their leadership potential in the future as well? You know, it gives us indications as to this would be a good team leader in the future. And it really helps us structure the face-to-face interview questions when they come in. Is that psychometric test an industry standard or is this something that you've uh, introduced yourselves? It is an, it's an industry one created by a man called Neil Eastwood. He runs a company called Sticky People. Mm-hmm. And it's used right across the Right at Home Network and I believe quite a few of the other care franchises as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm in a unique position in London in terms of we get too many CVs, whereas a lot of the other areas in Right at Home, for example, they really struggle to recruit because they're in more rural areas where there just isn't a pool of people there. So it is a really good way for us to immediately cut down the number of CVs we're having to go through by sending that just immediately to all applicants and then we can start on the telephone interviewing once we get the results. Do you feel that Brexit will have an impact on the um, workforce that you're able to recruit? I think it does because we see a lot of people that ignore that email to ask them to complete the test link mm-hmm. and that really pulls out, right, well, you can't really be genuinely that interested in the job if you don't want to spend less than five minutes completing a psychometric test. Mm. Now, uh, and the answers are sorry. The answers are so accurate as well. You know, there's a couple of times people at the beginning people did amazing interviews, but the psychometric test was saying this is a flaw in their personality. They won't be good at taking direction. But you know, we were starting out, and we thought, well, you know, they seem really good. Let's give them a try. And time after time, it's proved to be 100 percent correct. Hmm. So now we we will completely rely on that. No matter how good an interview is, we know that psychometric test is an accurate prediction as to what the employee would be like. Now, unfortunately, our time together has drawn to its close, but what does the next 12 months have in store for Right at Home Central London? For us, we just a few weeks ago launched an addiction recovery service. Mm -hmm. And so there's going to be a big focus on that for the rest of the year, as well as continuing to grow the care sites. The majority of our work comes from private hospitals, um, hospital discharge, and we'll be continuing to build more relationships with the other private hospitals in London as the year progresses. Well, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on the program and the best of luck in the coming uh, weeks and months uh, to you and your entire team. Brian, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was Brian McMorn, Managing Director of Right at Home Central London. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, we're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Oh, there, there are one or two people who are very familiar um, uh, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex, uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool, many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and... um, yes, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be playing, I guess, with one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a, there's a, another world that might exist where um, 
So Jeff Hurst was a, a first-class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or, or football, obviously the importance of leadership, it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He and He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess. He would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd work with. So you're very fortunate. I think you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood and, of course, a great manager in Sir Alf Ramsey. So to come across people like that of that calibre can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's, that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with, with a manager like, like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players. And of course, they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peter's? I think probably, well, I was very fortunate to play with the talent of the players I did. Again, again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters, who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's concerned, I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved. And what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Noor. Although he was only... Uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more, looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy with the same age group as me. And I looked at how he, how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly all walks of life. Leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident. I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships. And you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership and that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved in my career in those early days with two, two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that, but obviously... Uh, after uh, at West Ham, your uh, plan came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man I'm sure when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, 
in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Alf Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, mm. Naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand, whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you. It can have a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and, of course, your life. But yep. in that era I was involved for six or seven years, he it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very, very strict. Probably at a time, maybe overly strict, but at a time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across and very few people... And he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who he didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people, and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn suit, and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned, and I've taken it on in my life, and my family, you've got somebody in the group that doesn't want to be part of it, you you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless of that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one thing I, one of the most serious things I think I've learnt over a long period of time. And is there, do you think, uh, a, a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, if you could uh, perhaps pick right now, that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly... Um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team or certainly in the squad and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's that for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing... Um, in it, only a few games before I was I was playing, and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia. Only a couple of months before the final, and it looked at that stage as if I was going to be, be playing in, in the team. But uh, in a couple of friendly games, more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway, I think in Denmark, mm. I didn't. I played two of the four games, and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England and he, he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay he started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Hunt. so I, I had an impact of thinking I at that stage I, like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position and somewhat fortuitously I only got back in the team because of a a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Glee's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know, in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Well, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, 
not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't. You're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really. Looking back out, mm. so I never really felt. People talk about pressure a lot, and it's there. And people, players talk about. People talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessary to feel any great pressure pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Alf showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had we were very I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals um, we had some great players but overall they were great hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with you know over the years and Jeff I've got to ask and I'm, I'm not making this up I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realised there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I, I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows, in fact, starting this week, over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both they're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the the other ridiculous question I get asked: Did I realise there were people on the pitch? And of course, I jokingly say, "Yes, I was just about to to shoot to score the goal, and I looked round, put my foot on the ball, and looked round for a little while, and said, oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch.' So that's." Uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that and saying, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited to just have a, look, have a glance around, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that, such as stupid questions, really. Um... Oh, yeah, there are. There certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, in most stupid, irrelevant questions that absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever which uh, was absolutely... But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then, but we... Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You've want, you got time, I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go on. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay, so I was uh, doing a, a, at a dinner in the you know, Channel Lines, three or 400 people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honour. Mm-hmm. On this occasion, I was speaking for about 20 minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. And there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden I had a, somebody at the back who, who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give mm. this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> What a question. What a question. Uh, I think that would be definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Uh, Well, uh, and 
you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like I that. Just, but then I again, found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did, uh, um, it did make then again, laugh if you that if you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, but th- there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff. I think um, you were a young man when see, this happened, when you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you, or did you just realise that by, by quick, one way or the other, people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new, a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are. There are people who pay you compliments of, of uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and, of course, in, uh, England fans who... Um, I, I think probably... It would be very immodest of me to to suggest I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Uh, well, um, it's, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it. Perhaps, um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you, and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a, a helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitches. People must realise that that's, that has an influence. How you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team latterly. Um, yeah, and and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with? Um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader. Um, well, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to. Their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely, that's, that's absolutely leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today, uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson is just absolutely. Mm. You've got to take him as the first example. But Klopp's only done this for a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the twenty-five, twenty-six, twenty-seven years that. Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United, and subsequently since he's gone, how they they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen. We've seen we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's absolutely astonishing, astonishing. 
And do you think, could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think, yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood, yeah, the answer is straightforward. answer is yes. Um, they, <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with, um, and I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England, who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership but uh, companionship and and level-headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were very fortunate, and I wouldn't take any one player out. I think looking at so that, many. yeah, so many, and that's why we were successful because we had so many. Um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team, I think that that was outstanding, and uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody. And going back on an earlier earlier question for me, that um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days. Every year, uh, up until about five years ago, of course, with, with the uh, sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on with, all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish after '66. That reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. the, um, uh, getting on with each other, lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't and- when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those. I would pick every one of the 11 players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else. They were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We had some great players. We had some great players, of course. But without the attitude (laughs) alongside that, going back to an earlier question, we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately, ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the, the the whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word the word is team. the word is t- the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes you know, together, everyone achieves more, and that that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, Jeff, uh, looking if if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life. What would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-mindedness, single-mindedness, dedication, dedication to the job. Um, thinking about that, that that role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. I don't think you can switch off. When you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level, you may, you know, have a, have a couple of weeks holiday. But I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not, uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks 
um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's, you're completely focused. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over this, go over the past and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.